0: Our scripture passage this morning is from the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Jonah 3, 1 through 10. The passage will be up on the screen if you have a Bible. We do hope that you will pull that out and follow along with us. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. If you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. (coughs) Jonah 3, starting in verse 1. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, Lord, we ask for your presence and, and blessing as we make our way through this text. We have absolutely no ability to rightly process this and, and learn from it and grow spiritually unless your spirit moves in us. And so we, we plead with you for that. May this be a mighty season of change for all of us in which we become more like you in affections and our character. And we pray, Lord, that you would raise up mentors to, to meet with these students and take stock in the Aquin Jones, and we were saying that there's 10 or so slots on this side of town. We could, we could fill those slots, Lord. Would you, would you impress this sort of desire upon the hearts of those who are gathered here right now for the sake of your glory and for the good of these students in our city? We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this whole idea of repentance really offends our contemporary sensibilities because it suggests that we have internal problems, not just external problems. We're very comfortable talking about external problems, which are real. You know, we're very comfortable talking about uh, the circumstances that are bringing us down, the people who are letting us down, etc., etc. The author and communications guru Thomas Erickson has released a series of books on communicating with people in the workplace, beginning with his best-selling book, Surrounded by Idiots, which has sold like one and a half million copies or something like that, followed by Surrounded by Bad Bosses and Lazy Employees, followed by Surrounded by Psychopaths, and then Surrounded by Setbacks, and then just recently in June, Surrounded by Narcissists. The titles are a little bit tongue-in-cheek, if you read these books, but I got to say, they're also an uncomfortable cultural mirror, because as you probably know, book titles are intended to connect with potential readers and help the author sell more books. Thomas Erickson is simply taking advantage of what we want to believe, or really do believe, that we would be just fine, thank you very much, were it not for the idiots and the psychopaths and the narcissists, and the setbacks out there. But of course, as others before me have noticed concerning this series of books, has it ever occurred to Thomas Erickson that he might actually be the problem? And that's the thing. Very often it doesn't occur to us, which is why the books aren't called How Not to Be a Narcissist, so that people in your office can actually work with you. No one would buy that. Or if it does occur to us that we might be the problem, we find ways to justify our behavior or to pass blame for it on down the line. So repentance, it, man, it offends our sensibilities, unless perhaps we're talking about other people repenting. Here's the thing, though. As we'll see this morning, last week we talked about salvation in Jonah chapter 2. Here's what we're going to see this week. There's no salvation without repentance. There's no salvation without repentance. It's part of the process of salvation, both at conversion, and then throughout our entire lives as God transforms us. Maybe we would like to believe that salvation simply involves God getting rid of the the bad guys out there, and there is something to that. But we can't have any part of such a great salvation unless we ourselves repent. And even for those of us who, who are part of God's family, neglecting repentance stunts our spiritual growth and development. So two reflections this morning is we see what Jonah has to show us about the beauty and the nature of repentance. Remember, Jonah tends to show more than tell, and so we'll see this morning two things that it shows us about the beauty and the nature of repentance. Number one, we get to repent And then number two, God loves to relent. We get to repent. God loves to repent. That'll preach, right? We should have had someone playing the keyboard and laying down something underneath that. So let's start with that first reflection. We get to repent. Emphasis here on the get. We get to repent. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, which, now work with me here. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, which parallel chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and actually inaugurate a series of events in chapters 3 through 4 that parallel the events in chapters 1 through 2. In fact, structurally speaking, we might say that chapter 3, verse 1 is the apex of the entire book, and in many ways, its organizing theme. Then... The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Don't miss this. This is is not a a throwaway transitional comment. This is not a boardroom presentation where the the CFO says, okay guys, let let me click over now to the second slide. That's not what's going on here. Based on what we know about the first time, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, there most definitely should not have been a second time. Here's the first time. Do you remember this in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And now here's a concise summary of Jonah's response. No, I am not going to do that. And in fact, just to put a, a bit of extra oomph into his no, Jonah went down to Joppa, and he hits a ride with some mariners who were sailing to Tarshish, as in, in the opposite direction of Nineveh. It's a no, and in fact, I'm going to go the other way. If you've ever parented toddlers, you're very familiar with this kind of behavior. It's never just a no, I will not meet you in my bedroom to take my nap. You know, I'll just stay right where I am, thank you very much. Instead, it's a no, followed by this kind of like shuffle prancing sort of business where they hightail it in the opposite direction. And then you have to chase them down. So Jonah said no, and then he got out of there, trying to flee from the Lord's presence. But God pursued Jonah. He pursued Jonah, intervening with a supernatural storm that threatened to break up their ship. So Jonah had the mariners hurl him into the sea to save their lives, plummeting toward the bottom of the deep as the storm above ceased from its raging. And then when his life was literally fainting away, the text says, he cried out to the Lord out of his distress. And the Lord heard him and sent a fish to save Jonah from the midst of Sheol, from the bottom of the bottom. Just as Jonah was about to take up residence in the realm of the dead, the Lord brought Jonah's life up from the pit. And then chapter 2, verse 10. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. A really coarse word, actually, in the Hebrew language. It's not entirely clear where this dry land was, but... A location somewhere close to Joppa, where Jonah originally boarded the ship, is a pretty good guess. And man, the vomiting (laughs) reminds us just how messy Jonah's journey and transformation are turning out to be. My goodness, there's nothing clean or straightforward about it. And I can't think of a better way to process that emotionally than to envision a puking fish. Those of you with complicated stories should feel right at home in the book of Jonah. Jonah shouldn't have even been alive at this point. He should have been dead. But on account of God's mercy and grace, there Jonah was on dry land. The storm should have killed him. It should have killed the mariners. But the Lord relented. Not because anyone on that ship deserved it per se, but because God is full of, Of mercy and compassion. The realm of the dead should have impounded Jonah forever. But the Lord showed undeserved favor to Jonah and lifted him up. And you know, the grace just keeps on coming here. In chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. See, this is is a tremendous grace to Jonah who now gets this second chance to rightly respond to God's word. And by the way, it was a tremendous grace to the Ninevites whose opportunity for repentance very well could have ended with Jonah sailing off to Tarshish or certainly when Jonah was plummeting towards Sheol, which would have been an entirely just outcome. It's not like God owed the Ninevites anything. And by the way, the Assyrian Ninevites were notoriously violent, evil people when they captured people that were their foes. They they tortured them in ways that I don't even feel comfortable stating here on a Sunday morning. But when God pursues people, church, when God pursues people, even people as evil as the Assyrian Ninevites, nothing, gets in his way. you see this? Nothing gets in his way. Of course, God will never not pursue people who are already his own. He will always stick with them despite their unfaithfulness. He certainly disciplines his people to correct and transform, but he does not abandon. That is the magnitude of the grace of God. And then when God desires to make some people into his people, which appears to be the case with the Ninevites here, although it's complicated and we'll explore that more in just a moment. When God desires to make some people into his people, he's always going to stick that out as well. Yes, God God uses us to reach other people spiritually, to reach the nations. He was certainly using Jonah. But man, if you think that you can somehow botch God's plan by means of your personal shortcomings or failures, think again. Consider the pagan mariners back in chapter 1 who started fearing the Lord and even worshipped the Lord with a sacrifice and, and vows while Jonah was literally disobeying God by rejecting his prophetic calling. He's telling God no, he's running away, and the pagan mariners apparently get saved. You cannot botch things more than Jonah was botching things and then these mariners start fearing the Lord. How's that for some, I mean, missionary confidence? Not just vocationally, but in the rhythms of everyday life with your neighbors and your coworkers workers and, and your family? Let's confidently go out on mission to make disciples. It's something we talked about just a few weeks ago. Because God's got some folks in mind who are going to become his people including plenty of folks you've ruled out as being unsafeable. And let me tell you, and you've already seen this, uh, Jonah did not have the Assyrian Ninevites on his bingo card. They were not in his spiritual ecosystem at all. And let's confidently go out on a mission to make disciples because even when we botch things up, and we will sometimes, we will never capsize God's plan. He's still going to reach the folks he wants to reach. Which brings us back to verses 1 through 5. The word came to Jonah a second time, not only for Jonah's sake, but for the sake of the Ninevites, whom God was still pursuing. And this time Jonah went a 500 or so mile journey, if indeed he started near Joppa. When he arrived, he got to preaching, apparently three days' worth of preaching, verse 3, in various sectors of the city, in the region, due to the size of the city, and, and the pace of his walking. And his sermon was very straightforward, just five words in the Hebrew, as you can see there in verse 4. Maybe some of you would prefer a, a five-word sermon, but Jonah preached a five-word a five sermon here in the Hebrew. Here's the sermon, here's the whole thing. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was the word. And, you know, perhaps Jonah was was too concise with his message, trimming it down a little bit and omitting anything pertaining to repentance because he didn't really want them to repent. We'll get into this more next week. But regardless, the Ninevites still sensed an opportunity for repentance, most likely because of this 40 days business. He didn't say anything about it but they still sensed an opportunity to repent. Jonah's message was structured less like a prophecy concerning unavoidable events or more like a warning about pending consequences unless the Ninevites changed their ways and they were on the clock. Forty days. And you know what? This is one of the more remarkable events in Scripture, not exaggerating. Look at verse 5. And then what? The people of Nineveh believed God. Are you kidding me? The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And you know what? You might, you might write that up. That's just the common people. Keep going. Eventually the message made its way to the Ninevite king, the head honcho there in Nineveh. Verse 6. Who arose from his throne and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You know things are getting serious when you've got the livestock getting in on the fast, right? I know some of you have fasted before, but did you put up your dog's food dish while you were fasting? I doubt it. Our beta fish has fasted a couple of times, but that was an accident. <laughs> and things were serious. And the Ninevites knew it. They knew it. Not only did Jonah not mention this opportunity for repentance, but he didn't mention their specific indiscretions either. But the king of Nineveh knew exactly what the problem was. He knew exactly what the catalyst was for imminent divine judgment. And he named it in the second part of verse 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. They were evil. They were violent, and they knew it. No one really had to tell them. And the solution, check out the solution. Turning away from it. Not just naming it. Turning from it. Which is the essence of repentance. Repentance is turning from, or, or returning. Emphasizing a firm leaving of something in favor of going to or back to something else. That's repentance. In fact, the Hebrew word translated turn here in verse 8 effectively means repent in certain Old Testament contexts, and the common Hebrew word for repentance incorporates the same root. Church, do you notice that the Assyrians are actually showing us the way? I mean, we, we thought the Israelites would be the model, but at this particular point in history, King Jeroboam II was leading the northern Israelite kingdom into all kinds of evil, following in the footsteps, by the way, of his father and grandfather, and then the Assyrians, of all people, were turning back from their evil, and in doing so, showing us quite a lot of things about the nature of repentance. I could mention 10 things, but I will um, limit myself to three for the sake of time. Number one, no salvation without repentance. No salvation without repentance. Divine punishment for Ninevite evil was definitely coming in 40 days apart from their repentance. God is so merciful. He is so compassionate, but he's also just and will not tolerate unrepentant evil. Forever. No salvation without repentance. Number two, no repentance without turning away from your sin, from wickedness, and from the worship of false gods. Confession is so important, but it's not repentance. Vulnerability is so important, but it's not repentance, even when it feels brave and cathartic and real. Yes, of course. We need to confess our sin. Of course we need to name it. But then we turn from it. Then we turn away from it. Confession and vulnerability is important as those things are often masquerade as repentance. They're not exactly the same thing and can even be spiritually dangerous if they swap out real repentance for feelings of repentance. And then number three, no turning away from your sin. Unless you know your sin, you can't turn away from it unless you're aware of it. And did you notice that the Ninevites, they didn't bother trying to excuse their sin or deflect moral responsibility? Do you see this? They didn't blame their circumstances. They didn't say, you know, it's, okay, I understand what you're saying, but it's very exhausting being a Ninevite these days. There's political instability. We're dealing with a major famine, which they were. They didn't say, well, of course, we're violent, but our neighbors, they're also violent, so, I mean, you know, what are you going to do? And the Ninevite king didn't reference his vocational stress. You know, he didn't say, well, you know, I I understand what you're saying, but being a king, you know, it kind of keeps you on edge, you know? I mean, folks are always trying to kill me, and these people that I'm ruling, they're very difficult people. They're they're very hard to manage. I'm sure all that was true to some degree. But instead of saying all that, they knew their sin, and they just, they owned it. Which set the table for turning. Difficult circumstances and other people's sin can and definitely do affect us, they're always part of the equation. But even though that's true, none of this ever erases our own sinfulness. It's so uncomfortable knowing and admitting our sin. But church, it is such a grace when God shows it to us and convicts us accordingly, a work ascribed to the Holy Spirit in the book of John, chapter 16, because then we get to repent. Repentance, it's not a punishment. It's not drudgery. It's definitely hard. But it's a get-to, sponsored exclusively by God's grace that gives us freedom and life and salvation. I want to bring back this bit from John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom was Archbishop of Constantinople and probably the greatest preacher in the late 4th and early 5th centuries. I mentioned this over the summer during our Sermon on Sin in Psalm 51, but it's relevant again. It's just too good. This is what he says. He says, Be ashamed when you sin. Don't be ashamed when you repent. Sin is the wound. Repentance is the medicine. Sin is followed by shame. Repentance is followed by boldness. Satan has overturned this order and given boldness to sin and shame to repentance. Church, repentance is a get-to because it wipes away our shame and it gives us boldness before the Lord in the wake of our sin. How? And this is where things start to get wild. How? On account of Jesus Christ, the Word of God who came to us and dwelt among us. And when Jesus came to this earth, becoming fully human while retaining the full divinity, his full divinity as the Son of God, check this out. In a sense, he was the Word of God coming to us a second time. Remember the first time? Here's the first time, back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man that is Adam and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Boy, have we made a gigantic mess of that one. (sighs) Trying to be like God instead of worshipfully acknowledging that there is no one like God and living according to his wisdom. God effectively said to us, here's the thing, I'm going to put you here in this garden, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, and then you will live well and flourish. And then the concise summary of our response has been, no, I'm not going to do that. In fact, I'm going to go the other way, toward false gods. But God's word came to us a second time in Jesus. Do you see this? God's word came to us a second time in Jesus, who is the word, proclaiming repentance and belief in the gospel, that we might be saved and become part of God's kingdom family. Repentance that Jesus not only proclaimed, but made possible, when Jesus, even though he never turned away from God, experience the pangs of death on our behalf on the cross that we might turn away from our sin and turn back to God. And you can repent. You can participate. Something that I can say with full confidence without knowing anything about your background or story. You know, if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I... I want to turn away from false gods, and I, I want to put my hope in the Lord, but, but goodness, my sins, they're just too many to count, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're, they're too awful. Um, God pursued the Ninevites. He pursued the violent people who love to torture their foes. Might God be coming for you this morning in the best possible way? And then, of course, some of us here this morning have put our hope in the Lord a question for you though where might God be nudging you this morning where might you get to repent for the sake of purging sin and reclaiming your joy in the Lord and remember confession isn't the same thing as repentance it's important but it's not the full deal What will it look like to really turn away and turn back? And how will you involve your church family in this process? Who will be on your team? We don't turn away from our sin in isolation. We need help. We need family. We need accountability. We need one another. Even if it's the most damning or embarrassing sin you can imagine, I am pleading with you to believe this morning that repentance is still a get-to And that full forgiveness is certainly yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, well, I hope that's not too much good news for you to handle because I have even more of it here briefly as we end. We're spending by far most of our time in that reflection with a few more comments before we end. Not only do we get to repent, second reflection, listen, God loves to relent. Look with me at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. The Ninevites repented, and then God didn't overthrow or destroy them. The nature of Ninevite repentance and belief, the word that's used in verse 5, it's kind of difficult to discern here. I mean, did they... Did they really turn toward the Lord and disassociate from their pagan gods? Or did they merely kind of put the kibosh on their violence in order to escape punishment? I really don't want to overuse parenting references here at City Church, but it's hard not to be cynical about this Ninevite thing if you have kids. I mean, when the kids turn the TV off, even though their show isn't over yet, you do wonder if it has more to do with avoiding a timeout than concerns that TV might be becoming an idol in their lives. However, there are actually at least two reasons to believe that there was something genuine about this Ninevite repentance. I mean, number one, the Lord relented. And biblically speaking, the Lord really doesn't tend to relent in the face of fake repentance or faith. Believe it or not, he can see right through that kind of thing. And then number two, Jesus himself, in a dialogue with some religious leaders about the sign of Jonah, speaks of the Ninevites repenting at the preaching of Jonah. Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. So this suggests that as hard as this is to believe that some real repentance has occurred, albeit probably short-lived, according to the historical record, which, which kind of goes dark for a season at this point concerning the Assyrians. And then when the info stream comes back online, unfortunately, we do see them returning to their pagan conquering ways, which was very bad news for Israel. So if repentance did occur, and I think there are good reasons to believe that, the new spiritual ethos does not appear to have been passed down to the next generation. But at the very least, and this is basically where I want to kind of end us this morning. At the very least, doesn't this show us that God loves to relent? He's a just God, but he is never looking to judge or destroy. Do you see this? In fact, he's always looking to relent, which is what we might call his, his default posture, we, we seem to have some repentance here from the Assyrians. But I mean, I mean barely. Right? It, it's fair to say that there's some repentance. It's also fair to say that this is probably on the low end of the spectrum when it comes to repentance and potentially faith. Yet God still relents. Because he loves to do it. Because he is full of grace and mercy and compassion. And one more thing, the Lord sent Jonah to the Ninevites at exactly the right time, assuming that repentance was the outcome that the Lord was looking for. As I mentioned earlier, Syria was getting humbled at that point, especially politically. And they were dealing with a massive, devastating famine. So if there was ever a moment for soft Assyrian hearts, this was it. Thus the Lord's timing, if indeed he was looking for repentance. Experiences of weakness are often the context for genuine repentance, and so the Lord sent Jonah, because the Lord is full of mercy and compassion. How does this reframe your view of God and his character? An unhinged smiter, he is not. In fact, get this. He's far more merciful and compassionate than we will ever be. Far more merciful and compassionate than Jonah was. And we will dive into that next week. Dane Ortland gets into this, by the way, this theme in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which we read as a church a couple of years ago. The Lord loves to relent. The Lord loves to heal. He loves it when people come to him in weakness, confessing and repenting of their sin. And then one last thing. How might this comfort? How might this comfort those of us who are struggling to believe this very morning that we have enough faith? Or, you know, that we've repented thoroughly enough. That can cause a lot of anxiety. Growing up, I was so anxious about. It. I got saved growing up like seven times. I was a source of great joy to many churches and camps. Praise <laughs> the Lord. I was, I was counted a lot. But our salvation, so important, our salvation is ultimately grounded in the strength of our Savior, not the strength of our faith. So know this, when you turn, God will relent. Because he loves to do it. Amen.